0: Okay, so I have some bad news to share, unfortunately, and that is that if you're listening to this right now, you are going to die. And so am I, and so is our guest today. And maybe I shouldn't even call this bad news, right? It is simply a fact, a certainty. It is one of the only certain things in life. For that reason, I don't think we should fear it or be afraid to talk about it at the very least. And I know our guest today agrees with me, Shotzi Weisberger is 91 years old and a death educator. She works with people to dismantle their fears and worries and also to figure out what they want. What is your desire for your death? Because the dying experience is something that we can approach with intentionality and I think we're only just now beginning to have that conversation in the mainstream. Before all this, Shotzi worked as a nurse for 47 years, part of that was during the height of the AIDS crisis when she cared for people with AIDS, and all the while she's been a fixture at marches and protests here in New York City, whether marching against police brutality or with the Jewish Voice for Peace, Shotzi is there right at the front with one of her famous signs. So, without further ado, let's get to the interview. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, This is LGBTQ&A with the 91-year-old Shotzi Weisberger. So to start, I want to begin with the end. You're 91 years old and a death educator. Have you always been interested in and comfortable with death, or has that only come with age?
1: Well, I was a nurse for 47 years, and my main interest was Earth coming into the world, and death leaving the world. I wasn't comfortable with death. I was interested in. It. And about five or six years ago, I stopped doing a particular community work that I had been doing and I had time. And I was bored. And I said, I have to have a project. And I thought about, well, what do I want to do? And I thought, I'll become a death educator. So I took a five-month 70-hour course, The Art of Dying, and I took a hospice course with the New York City Visiting Nurse Service. And I started doing workshops on the art of dying. And as I was doing the workshops, and as I was learning
0: all about it, I did become much more comfortable. Yes. Was it something you specifically learned that like made you more comfortable with it? Or was it just kind of the like exposure? I think it was a combination of both of those things. I actually came
1: to somewhat of a different perspective than the mainstream part of dying. It's becoming more popular. The mainstream perspective deals primarily with palliative care. And the object of palliative care is very admirable. I totally support lessening pain and anxiety. But if that is the goal, it is often achieved by drugging the dying person at end of life. And therefore, the person is semi-conscious, sometimes even unconscious. And that's fine. If somebody wants that to be their end of life, I totally support it. But I would like people to know that there are other options. And I have come to a different option. Yeah, tell us. Well, I hope that I won't die suddenly of a heart attack or buy a car. I hope that I will have time to experience my dying process. I want to be home in my own bed. A friend of mine has uh, offered to be with me. I want to be able to have my friends come and say their goodbyes. And for many years now, I have been creating a bequeath list. And whenever my friends came to the house, I told them, look around, see what you like. Because when I die, I want it to be yours. Because I'm, I love my home and I'm very attached to my stuff. I really love my stuff. So I want, wanted to go to happy homes. And so all around the house, I have little tags on different items as to who it's going to go to. So anyhow, so that at, at my end of life, I want people to come, say good, their goodbyes, pick up their bequeath items. And I don't want to be drugged. I don't want morphine. I don't want to be in pain. So I have arranged for an acupuncturist to come if I am in pain, and you know they do major surgery with acupuncture. So she assures me that she can help me if I'm in pain at the end of life.
0: So is science good enough that you will know when you are at the end of your life? I guess my quote, my worry is that you have your friends say goodbye, they take all your possessions away, and then Shotzi's here for three more years.
1: That sometimes does happen, but if I have a terminal illness and my organs are failing, it's not likely. When I do die, my friend who I mentioned that's going to be with me, plus Amy Cunningham, who is my funeral director, she's in Brooklyn, practices in Brooklyn. So Amy and my friend Gina and two other dear friends are going to prepare my body. They're going to bathe me. And wrap me in a shroud because I am going to have a green burial. I'm not going to have a coffin. I could if I wanted to, as long as it would be biodegradable, you know, cardboard or wicker, even pine. Jewish burials, which are in pine coffins, so are actually green burials. Anyhow, so okay, so I'll be wrapped in a shroud. And Amy is going to drive my body upstate. I have a plot. It's not a plot. It's a spot in the in the woods upstate. I'm going to be buried there in the woods. At some point, my body will start to deteriorate, and something will grow. It might just be weeds, or it might be a bush or a flower. It might be a tree. So I perceive my end of life as bringing life into the world. That's what I'm hoping for. Whether or not it happens that way, who knows? We'll have to see. But that's that's my desire.
0: I want to go back to what you said about your body being prepared by your friend. I think you said washed and bathed as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's my understanding that it is a Western world thing and also new in the West to experience like fear and disgust around dead bodies. That's fairly new in history, right?
1: I've done some research and it's controversial. Some of the research claims that over a hundred years here and the United States, uh, people didn't go to the hospital. They died at home. So others were much more familiar with the dying process. So a lot of the research goes in that
0: direction. But I've also read that there's always
1: been discomfort around death.
0: Where does that discomfort come from? Is it about the fact that we don't know what happens? Is it about like
1: pain? Actually, up until quite recently, there wasn't much people could do in terms of pain, pain relief. And I think perhaps people weren't as afraid of pain as we are today. We we really don't want to have any pain whatsoever, as if pain is not part of life, as if dying is not part of life.
0: And we are also like keeping people alive much longer than ever before in history. Absolutely. I, I fear this makes me sound like ableist, but if I'm 90 years old and I cannot walk or talk, I don't know that I would want to live for 10 more years like that personally, being kept alive.
1: I totally understand that. Absolutely. And of course, there's a big movement used to be called and some still it doctor-assisted
0: suicide. It's called... Death with Dignity?
1: Yeah, yeah, death with dignity. And it's called medically-assisted end of life. There aren't that many states that actually do have that as a law. I prefer visa's. V-S-E-D, Voluntary Stopping Eating and Drinking. To me, that is a much more intimate, personal decision. I actually, a good friend of mine chose VSED. It took her 10 days and then she was dead. It can take longer. It can take a few weeks. You know, people think, oh, I couldn't go without food. I get hungry. It's not a big deal. You get a little thirsty, My friends occasionally would ask for a sip of ginger ale, so that did not hydrate her.
0: That kind of relates back to what you were saying earlier about how we medicate and often over medicate people, like in the end of their life. And it's like if you're being over medicated and you can't speak, you also cannot ask for that if you desire it, like a medically assisted death, like to, to, to end your life.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. It's quite a a complicated procedure. In general, it differs from state to state. But in general, you have to have two doctors who will ascertain that you will die within six months. That is generally the case. Now, some people who can afford it go to Switzerland, although it is a little complicated there as well. You don't have to be, you know, it could be at at any point in your life. It doesn't have to be just a confirmation end of life.
0: I use this phrase, death educator. I think most people don't actually know, haven't heard that before. Do you mind just explaining a bit about that work you do?
1: Yeah, well, I do workshops. I actually have continued to do a virtual work for the past two years. It's once a month, and it's 6.30 to 9.00. You may have heard of death cafes. They were started over in, in Europe, and they came here as well. I don't do a death cafe because the death cafes have a particular format. They don't allow for any agenda. And when they first started, that made sense because who knew? <laughs> no one knew anything about it really to speak of. But in the past few years, we've learned a lot. And so the one that I conduct, we asked someone in the group if they would like to do a short presentation on a particular subject, five, 10 minute presentations on loneliness, pain, on green burials, is there an afterlife? And then after the presentation, people can respond to that or discuss anything else they want to discuss. So that's how the group that I'm conducting runs. And I I really like that format, given that there is information, and I, I want people to be able to share that information.
0: I mean, so like death aside, what has been the hardest part of aging for you?
1: I am almost 92. I'll be 92 in June, which is coming up real soon, which I think is amazing. (laughs) And only very recently, actually just within weeks ago, I started to experience quite a bit of pain. Actually, it was months, not weeks. Months ago, I started to experience quite a bit of pain in my right foot. I do have a deformity there, but generally I wasn't in much pain. Then I, recently, I started to. It's hard for me to walk, even not walking, even just sitting. This, the foot does pain me. When I think of it, I think how lucky I am that here I am, almost 92, and I'm first experiencing chronic pain. It's amazing. So many people suffer so much, and I have been very blessed, very lucky. Aging has been pretty easy for me. I have been very lucky.
0: That's an amazing answer.
1: Well, I think it is amazing that I'm still alive and that my getting old has been as easy as it has been. Yes, I think it is amazing. I agree.
0: And so going back in time, you were a young adult and you went to school. You married a man. How aware were you at that time that you were gay?
1: I wasn't aware. I wasn't. As a matter of fact, after I left my marriage, and it wasn't because I had decided that I was gay, I just was in a very unhappy marriage. And then I did fall in love with my best friend, but it it didn't work. And it worked for her. She went on and she had wonderful relationships. And I was very intimidated by it. My background is that my mom was a lesbian in an age when being a lesbian was very different than what it
0: is today. Whoa, so you were born in 1930. Your mom must have been like in the early 1900s?
1: Yes, yes.
0: And so was her being a lesbian like an open fact that you grew up with?
1: No, it was totally hidden. Oh. She actually lived with her partner. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and my sister and I shared the bedroom and my mom and her partner went in a day bed in the living room. So over the years, I thought, I wonder, I wonder if they're, I don't know if I had the terminology, but I wondered if they were gay. And I said they couldn't be because I couldn't believe that I would not have ever noticed something about it. They, they, they were so cautious. They never so much as touched each other gently, or, you know, looked lovingly at each other. So I said, no, they couldn't be. But And then many years later, I was already an adult. And I took my mother and I said, tell me the truth. Because what I was referring to was when I was five years old, my dad took me and my baby sister away from my mother. And I grew up in foster homes for a few years. Mm -hmm. And I never understood what was going on. So when I said to her, tell me the truth, So she explained that she and Nikki had been lovers and my dad had done this because he was so angry and I wasn't at all surprised.
0: Wow. And were you out to yourself at that point?
1: I was semi out. I was a political lesbian for many years. I just loved being around lesbians and I didn't have a relationship and I didn't have one for many years actually. And my mom, who was in a 47-year relationship, uh, she and her partner were grand marshals at one of the gay pride marches. Uh, I <laughs> I did not even have a 47-month relationship.
0: <laughs> and so you described yourself as a political lesbian. So like your all of your energy was going towards activism and politics at that point, you're saying? Yes. Yes. What were those early causes you were fighting for?
1: I was very much into arguing against nuclear technology. My first demonstration, one of my earlier demonstrations was here in New York City, and we did a die-in you know, along with other people lying on the ground. And I started to cry because I felt that I was in the right place, doing the right things with the right people. I felt very together about it. I have been
0: an activist ever since. Was that group? Don't that's for Dykes opposed to nuclear technology, yes,
1: along with Doris London and one other person, the founding members of Don't.
0: I think what stands out to me about Don't Dykes opposed to nuclear technology is that that is queer people fighting for a cause that is not queer, right? Nuclear technology like affects everyone, yes. Was it most of your activism like lesbians fighting for causes that were not queer only?
1: Yes, in my case, yes. I, I have many friends who primarily focuses around being queer. I was more into what's happening in the world, not just with queer people.
0: Yeah. When you said you weren't dating, to me, some of the most successful activist groups in our country, they also functioned as social groups. And that actually like proved helpful for the movement and their goals. But for you, you were not also meeting women and dating them throughout this.
1: No, I was. I wish I was. I would have liked to. I mean, now at almost 92, I wish I had a kissing buddy, but (laughs) it's not likely to happen.
0: Did you have any great loves in your life? No, I did not. I did not. Um,
1: The last relationship I had, which was quite short, only months long, was the best sexual relationship I've ever had. Prior to that, Sex was often associated with anxiety. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't. There was always, almost always a lot of anxiety around it. Whereas
0: in this last situation, anxiety (laughs) wasn't there. It was just passion. That's amazing. Were you in your 80s at that point? Yes. Yes. That's nice to have found that.
1: Yes. Never too late.
0: I asked that question about relationships. I don't have any judgment there. I don't think that that is mandatory for a fulfilling life by any means.
1: I don't think it's mandatory, but I think it's wonderful when it happens.
0: I also was wondering because you grew up in a time, at least in my opinion, where if a woman was single, she was like, quote unquote, would like failed in some way, right?
1: Yeah. The expectation was you got married, you had kids, you created a family. Maybe you worked, maybe you didn't.
0: And so I don't also want to leave out your current activism because you are still involved today. And the focus of your work is Jewish Voice for Peace.
1: Yes. As a Jew, it, it breaks my heart that the Jewish people who have been so oppressed for so many centuries are now the oppressors. And so many people who consider themselves progressives, they're progressive about Black lives, about you name it, But not around Palestine. And so they can't they're not progressives. They consider themselves progressive, but having the exception is not is not viable.
0: I think that nothing in our world is all good or all bad, of course, right? We can love something and critique it. And yet somehow Israel holds this really special place in like public discussions where you cannot critique it publicly. And I also find it to be honest with you, it's a little bit like challenging to speak about publicly because I think that people hear the words Israel, they hear the words Palestine, and their ears close. They cannot engage in public discussions. It's a really like a bizarre thing, at least in my experience.
1: Absolutely bizarre. I and any others who say anything about Israel, anything negative, we're called anti-Semites, which is nonsense. I mean, there is anti-Semitism is real and it's serious. And it's a major concern. Just the other day, a group of Jewish youngsters, I think age 12 to 16-ish, were accosted by three white kids. One had a sword, another had a a knife. uh, I forget what the third one had, some other weapon. There was no actual physical contact, but there was threats right on the streets in the daytime, right in, in the neighborhood. I mean, Definitely, uh, you know, the the white supremacist movement is very anti-Semitic. But many people think of Israel has to exist because Jews have to have a safe place to run to. I think Israel is a sitting duck. I think it's the most dangerous place for Jews these days.
0: I don't want to ignore anything that like any one country is doing. But I, I also am fascinated by the fact that Israel is a... Very, very, very tiny country in the world, and yet it commands a massive amount of attention in the ways that, like, almost on the same level as China. China is a gargantuan country, and the things they're doing to, like, the weaker population I find so bizarre that we don't, like, talk about these, like, re-education camps that are happening. Millions of people that that affects... And yet we've decided to ignore that and live with it. Israel and Palestine, you know, obviously very serious things are happening there. I, I find it quite devastating. But it has also become a massive political issue in the U.S. in the way that few other things have. Uh-huh.
1: It's interesting, <laughs> to say the least. I think in many cases it's a sense of shame over the Holocaust or over the... Nazi activity. And in terms of Jews, I think it's a commitment to victimhood.
0: Because that has also been our story for 2000 years. So it's hard to like change that image in our minds.
1: Right. Aside from being horrendous in terms of what is being done to Palestinians, I think it is horrible what's being done to the Jewish psyche as well.
0: Oh, I never thought about that part, but I think that's Right. You know, I do have to let you go, but I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: It's been lovely. I had dinner here. I, I invited
0: Jason Rosenberg. Oh, yeah. And he said he's a friend
1: of yours. He knows you.
0: He's a, an amazing young activist in New York. I mean, I say young. I'm like three years older than him.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, actually. The last demonstration, he pushed me in the wheelchair so I could be part of the demonstration. Because I have trouble walking these days. Yeah, that's how we met.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: Yeah, I hope you stay well and let's keep in touch.
0: Now after we spoke, Shantzi called me and wanted me to tell you that if there are any lesbians out there who are single and open to the possibility of connecting on a deeper level, feel free to reach out. So if that's you or someone you know, let me know and I'm more than happy to play matchmaker. This interview with Shotzi is part of our new elders project where we've been talking to amazing people, people like the 87 year old trans elder Barbara Satin. She said, "You know, you have lived your life as though you have been cursed by God. Have you ever stopped to think that maybe this is a blessing from God, and that maybe God has blessed you with this gender identity?" I hadn't ever thought anything positive about what I was doing, and I realized that it hadn't been much fun living it as living life as as being cursed by God. I thought I would try and live it as a blessing from God. That full interview with Barbara is available in our podcast feed and we've also got a link to it in our show notes. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. Come find me and I'll see you next week. Bye.